0: Hey everybody, this is Scott Lecky, and this is episode 8 of Jointly Venturing. I um, hope you all enjoyed episode 7, our discussion with uh, Dr. Volker Turk, the Assistant High Commissioner for Refugees at UNHCR in Geneva, where we talked about the state of the world as it relates to people who've been displaced from their homes and lands, and what's being done to rectify that And a related issue is what we're going to talk about today during Episode 8, and that is the whole question of Indigenous peoples, um, their rights, questions of displacement relating to Indigenous peoples, some of the progress that's been made over the years in protecting those rights, some of the back steps that have been taken very recently by countries such as Brazil and others to undermine and actually decimate Indigenous rights, And we have with us today um, author, photographer, indigenous rights, uh, activist and advocate, Peter McConkie, who will be speaking about some of his personal experiences working in Aboriginal communities across Australia. And generally his thoughts on the question of where we stand in Australia with respect to Aboriginal culture, Aboriginal rights, maybe the question of homelands. Uh, where Aboriginal uh, communities can, in many circumstances, flourish, um, and what what the future holds and and where we should move. So in the context, the general context of Indigenous rights, Indigenous peoples, we need to remember that up until the early 1980s, uh, the the prevailing perspective at the international level with regard to Indigenous peoples was simply that they should assimilate into mainstream society. This was the dominant point of view expressed by international law and policy at that time. It was reflected in particular in the only international treaty dealing with indigenous rights at that time, which was the International Labor Organization's Convention No. 107 on indigenous populations. Note, Note the terminology difference Between peoples and populations. The perspective that that convention took was essentially that indigenous peoples everywhere should be bred out of existence, in effect, and that they should simply assimilate with the dominant society in which they found themselves. So if you were a Yanomami Indian in Brazil, you should assimilate yourself into broader Brazilian society, and eventually there would be no more. question of indigenous rights or indigenous sovereignty or indigenous autonomy and people would just become citizens like everyone else with the requisite loss of culture etc associated with that same approaches were taken in australia where we're speaking from um in a whole range of countries across the world and for me personally the the link to this whole question Emerged around that very same time because the very first time I ever went to the United Nations, uh, in a capacity of actually being able to do something, was in uh, 1986 when the revision process commenced on Convention 107. And for me, that was a truly, you know, staggering time. I was 23 years old, and suddenly I was in a room with governments from around the world, with trade unions. With UN officials and most amazingly, NGOs and indigenous representatives themselves. I kind of couldn't even believe I was there. Um, and that's a long time ago now, but that's actually how I began my own personal uh, career when it comes to international law and international rights. So that convention, number 107, um, eventually was renegotiated and redrafted, came out 10 years or so later as International Labor Organization, ILO, Convention Number 169, which um, was a huge advance over Convention 107, um, but not really as far as indigenous peoples themselves wanted to go. So parallel processes began at the UN, the human rights bodies there, the Human Rights Commission at the time, the Subcommission on the prevention of discrimination and protection of minorities, and then the Indigenous Peoples Working Group also emerged. I believe that was the first uh, group-specific working group ever formed at the UN to advocate for the rights of a certain segment of society. Let's remember that indigenous peoples constitute probably 250 to 350 maybe more uh, million people across planet Earth. So we're talking about a significant portion of the human race who self-identify as indigenous. If we look at progress made between the 80s and now, there's a whole range of areas where there really has been considerable progress. If you take the case of Nunavut in Canada, for instance, um, the Inuit people there have their own quite high degree of autonomy um, set within the broader context of Canadian society. That didn't exist in, in the 80s. And um, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. That's now in place, has been for a number of years, and is used by Indigenous peoples across the world to make their case that they need to be treated equally and have all of their rights protected and respected and fulfilled just as everyone else should. Um, And there's a whole range of other instances of local parliaments forming, of movements forming, of national laws changing, um in australia there's some marginal steps forward uh, carried out simultaneously with rather large steps backwards um so there is definitely a growing recognition of indigenous rights globally but nonetheless the bottom line is um sadly that it would be difficult to identify any group of fellow humans that is more exploited more oppressed more victimized um more subject to land grabbing the decimation of their traditional lands etc. than indigenous peoples across the world so we need to think about why that is the case why were some of these societies able to exist for tens of thousands of years in the case of Australia at least 50 if not 65 million excuse me 65,000 years of continuous culture, continuous existence, habitation of what we now call Australia before colonizers came in the 1700s. They did that successfully in very difficult environmental circumstances and continue to try to do so today. And that's really a similar case about indigenous peoples across the world existing in places for thousands if not tens of thousands of years and then immediately treated as as if they were not even there by the colonizing invaders whether it was the spanish in latin america and central america uh or north america or the british and others who went to north america and australia and colonizers everywhere else they simply rode roughshod over the rights of indigenous peoples, in the case of the United States, indigenous peoples occupied the entire landmass of that country and were essentially herded up and placed into what are so, what are called now Indian reservations on some of the most marginal, most unproductive, most unappealing land, um, as if it was somehow the right of the colonizing invaders to do this. And the, the legacy of that continues to uh, this day. And no matter what country we're speaking about, the, the systematic problems facing indigenous peoples because of the attitudes by the dominant governing parties and classes in those societies continue. And it really will only be through continued organization by indigenous groups themselves combined with support by those other citizens in those societies that see the inherent value in preserving indigenous culture, giving more power to indigenous peoples who are very rightly called First Nations peoples for a very good reason. And then we can slowly but surely start to rectify issues of the past, such as reparations, such as returning land to people from whom it was arbitrarily acquired. And the list goes on. So let's spare a thought for Indigenous people everywhere. Let's try to imagine a brighter future. And in whatever capacity you can employ yourself, try to become part of the solution to the crisis facing Indigenous populations and not be part of the problem. So we're very, very happy today to have with us Peter McConkey, who, as I said earlier, is an author, he's a photographer, and he's worked very extensively with Aboriginal peoples across um, Australia, and has spent a lot of time in in Aboriginal communities, um, learning about their cultures and really immersing himself in in what they have. So, Peter, welcome. Thanks, Cody. So maybe tell us about I don't know one or two of the leading you know most important to you experiences you've had in indigenous communities in Australia over the years
1: well let's start by acknowledging country right now where we are where we sit on Bunurong country uh, about an hour's drive from Melbourne on the Mornington Peninsula so yeah really proud to be sitting here on on this country this great country the Bunurong Nation
0: and tell me more about what do you think by the way about welcome to country as a as a contribution by mainstream society towards the recognition of indigenous rights because there's a lot of criticism about that that it's simply a platitude that's a part of every single public meeting that all the politicians go through out of you know political necessity but there's not a lot of meaning behind it what do you think about that
1: if if i walk into a room and, and someone says how are you I'll tell them how I feel. I won't just say, yeah, I'm great, man. How are you going? You know, I'll tell them how I'm feeling, genuinely how I'm feeling. And I think acknowledgement to country is, is about that. Acknowledgement, if you can sit there or stand there and feel that acknowledgement, then you're on the right path. If you want to politicize it or debate it, then I've got to step away from that because I just want to feel it. I want to feel that acknowledgement or that welcome to country every time. Do you think that the,
0: whatever small steps that have been made forwards with respect to Indigenous rights in Australia will stop, though, at the welcome to country uh, portion of every public event, or will it continue to go on further? Is this, is this essentially a first step in the process to actually getting more rights, getting people's land back in, under their control that was never ceded? There was, sovereignty was never ceded by indigenous peoples in Australia to the invading colonizers. And they still maintain, in my view, as an international lawyer, quite rightly, that they have forms of sovereignty over the land that was taken from them arbitrarily without compensation, without collaboration, without consent. And we continue to live in a country where the vast majority of it was essentially stolen by forces that were more powerful than the people that were living there at the time and yes we've had court cases, we've had the famous Mabo case, we've had the famous Wicks case, we've had a whole range of other cases, we have Native Native Title Act, etc. But we're still, in my view light years away from a situation that would satisfy the wishes of most indigenous people
1: in the country. I I read the Bible a long time ago or, or parts of it and one of the, the pieces I love was the meek will in, inherit the earth. And I, I think that relates to people who connect to the earth and who are comfortable on the earth. So, look, the game's not over yet, if you want to call it a game, for, for the sake of, of what we're talking about here. You know, it's we've still got a way to go here. The culture the culture lives on. You know, I, I celebrate culture through the work that I do. I'm here to celebrate it, brother. You know, I'm not here to... To look at the the detail or, or, or negativity, because you know we can go down to down the street here and, and find some negativity going on, you know, here in Mornington. But let's celebrate culture through this interview and and through the, the journey we take together.
0: Well, one of the great things about this part of the world where we're sitting is um, knowing that for a very long period of time, the only people here were. Boonarung people and other indigenous groups that pass through, right? Mm. So do you have any favorite spots around here that you know to be of particular relevance to the indigenous groups that inhabited this area? Because I certainly do. I I very often go to one spot along the the ocean coastline where virtually no one ever goes, where there's a whole series of middens, um, you know, uh, um, discarded shells that were put there thousands of years ago by the local indigenous groups that were there at the time and you know i stand there in and i marvel at it as i look out at the endless ocean so you got any f- those favorite spots around here
1: discarded shells or strategically placed tell piece, tell di- me more pieces of uh, of uh, of kitchen utensils there to remind us where we are so yeah uh, I went to Point Nepean years ago and, and made a book there, aptly called Point Nepean. And it was to celebrate the, the natural uh, aspects of the point and show the beauty of, of Point Nepean. And I was fortunate, really, really fortunate to meet a fantastic uh, lady, Indigenous lady, First Nation lady called B. Edwards. And B took me down there and explained to me that Point Nepean is women's country. It It is, it, it's not it was, it is, it remains a women's birthing area and a women's area. And perhaps there'll be a birth there next week. Perhaps there might be one in 100 years' time. So it remains a women's birthing area down at Point Nepean. And men were only allowed there through invitation before I went into point nepean i was going in through london bridge along the ocean side and taking photographs and one one day the the sun was shining brightly and so i took off all my clothes and walked through point nepean with my cameras and i could hear women laughing at me and i was spooked by that and then i continued on the journey so i got dressed and and kind of thought what's going on here and uh and I walked along the shoreline and there were two, two tufts of spirally spinifexy kind of grass just rolling along either side of me. And I thought, oh, that's cool. And then I stopped and the two tufts of spinifex grass stopped. And then I walked and then they rolled. Right. Yeah, it was amazing. And then I, I had a major hiccup. I climbed a sand dune, um, with which was almost vertical for the sake of the story right now. And as I was going up that sand dune, uh, sand blew into my eyes and I couldn't see and I couldn't go up or down and I could have fallen and horrible things could have happened so by this stage I'd had enough I, I, I needed to get some sort of spiritual and cultural blessing on being there and it confounds me why I didn't do that to start with I just thought well, I'll go in and shoot shoot some pictures and, and do my thing here so I found B Edwards and and, uh, and she found me and we had a lovely conversation. And then she took me to Point Nepean and explained to me uh, some of the things that she she could explain to me that are in the book Point Nepean. So that remains a special place to me. And whenever I go in there, I always sing out or clap to the old ladies there that are watching over the area and ask permission. And I feel my answer. And I love to go in there.
0: Right. And I mean, this was this area was not heavily populated by Aboriginal people traditionally um, because of the absence of fresh water compared to other parts of Australia where you've been uh, quite extensively so what are some of the other areas where you've spent a lot of time um, in Indigenous
1: communities? Mm. Yeah I've I've traveled the country pretty extensively Scotty I've been working remote for probably 30 years now. Um, Northeast Arnhem Land I've got uh, family ties up there and I did a lot of growing up through my family ties there. It was very complete in, in terms of the yin and yang of life. You know, here we are living the Western lifestyle and there's the balancing of of that, the yin or the yang. In, in some of these communities, I really find that, that uh, experiencing culture is a very, very strong part of my growth. Uh, so northeast Arnhem Land, really profound. Central desert. The old ladies there, uh, Cooper Pity, a bit further south. I'm closely connected to some of the, the old people there, Cape York, uh, southern New South Wales. You know Cape Barren Island. You know Jimmy Jimmy Everett, who's down there. Awesome man. You know there's there's cultural cultural people all over this country that are holding law, holding culture, and who are deeply connected to this this country. And wow, what a great thing to be able to celebrate and and share, you know what they're what we're allowed to share.
0: When you say, just so listeners know, what what does it mean when you say holding lore or holding culture?
1: Holding lore and culture is when the the fruit is ripe on the, a basic example. When the fruit is ripe on uh, on the tree, then it's time to eat. That's when the lore of the land gives you that bounty. Um, you know, you can put it in a refrigerator or, or You know, something like that, and pull it out six months later. And, you know, that's another way to to eat that fruit. But the law of the land is to eat that fruit when it tells you it's ready. You know, we think, oh, yeah, look at that apple up there, it's ready. But in a deeper sense, you know, the law of the land is is giving you that bounty to suit that time of the year, that time of um, your nutritional requirements. There's a whole lot of things that tie into that. The law of the land is where that river flows is a border between two nations in this country. There are no straight-line borders here. And, you know, there's another law of the land. There are many laws on this land, and they vary depending on whose country we're on. And if you can gain some sort of insight to them, if you do have the fortunate opportunity of meeting an elder uh, or a community leader, for that matter, then ask the question, you know, how can I get it right? you know what what can i do on your country to walk your country in a respectful way and you might learn some of those laws and holding law is is when you actually are physically and spiritually holding it in yourself and i think you can kind of draw an interpretation from that yeah sure absolutely and we, we might revisit some law during this conversation as well okay all right sounds good
0: and um, you have a, a close connection with a guy called Uncle Max. Right? Tell us a bit about him. What's his day-to-day
1: goings on these days? Uncle Max is one of the great elders in my life. And uh, he's currently uh, on the Mur- in the Murray-Darling Basin uh, getting ready to have a healing ceremony for that, that great waterway that's under so much strife. So it's getting politically slammed and environmentally slammed. And, you know, uncle's going in there and a group of people from all around the country will, will go there as well. And he'll, he'll lead a, a healing ceremony there. And, you know, that's what the land needs at times, is to be acknowledged and to be felt, um, to be healed and to offer its own healing as well. You now once again, it's that, that, that balance Uh, so uncle's really great at ceremony he's a special man and he's been a a wonderful teacher and friend to me for over 20 years now Uh, he's an initiator, he initiates young men through uh, cultural law and then initiates them into manhood Uh, he's a healer, he knows plants that can do amazing things to uh, both men and women and he holds those laws. Uh, you know, he has a responsibility to make sure that, that culture continues. And in his words, uh, he has to give it away to keep it. So the more culture he can share, the more culture will live. It lives in us through his teachings. So we get to share it with our children and we get to to hold law. When he when he gives us that law to to acknowledge, so Uncle Max is is a great man. He's a UN elder from Southern New South Wales, and we've had many adventures. Uh, and I'm with him in the middle of March up in up at his place, and we're putting together a fantastic uh, project and organisation, which we can discuss another time.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure, and I think you know one of the things that people who are not living in indigenous Cultures or familiar with indigenous societies um, really have a difficult, difficult time in grasping is this relationship between virtually every indigenous group in the world and the land on which they live and the land on which they come from to the point where land and human are one and the same it's almost impossible to distinguish between one's homeland one's land and oneself i am my land and my land is me so removing people from their land not only harms them as humans but essentially gives them the, the feeling deep inside that that they are forever divided they are forever away from their land and if they're away from their land, it means that they're automatically on someone else's land. And that creates all sorts of collective trauma in people, whether now or a hundred years ago or hundreds of years ago, that trauma continues and, ne- and very often never really gets rectified. Whether we're talking about you know the, the Gunayala people of, of Panama or some of the Sami people in the northern part of Scandinavia, or um, some of the hill tribes in Thailand, or Aboriginal people here, or Maori people in New Zealand, or all the other indigenous groups, that direct connection to one's land is fundamental and is really at the core of what it means to be indigenous for a lot of people. And that's why land rights for indigenous people is such a fundamental issue. And why it's very difficult to make progress with regard to indigenous rights generally unless land falls right at the center of whatever equation is developed to ensure the, the greater enjoyment of rights there. So, maybe you can tell us, you know, maybe if you have any stories regarding land questions um, that you've come across over the years. I know you've spoken about the idea of. Uh, what are what are called homelands here which you know we we don't want to use that term in reference to how that's been used in other countries but in in a positive way um that's a term in australia which is makes reference to one's one indigenous group's original land um and the desirability of indigenous groups being able to go to that land and flourish there As opposed to any sort of reservation type situation or insertion into an urban environment etc so maybe talk about your experience with the homeland idea and just land generally when it comes to your experiences in indigenous areas
1: i spent two two years recording the elders report into preventing indigenous self-harm and youth suicide and I traveled from Cape York to the Kimberley through many communities and sat with a lot of elders to record that and I asked the question why is this happening self harm and suicide and what is the solution and I got the same answer from one side of the country to the other that Suicide and self-harm are happening through uh, young people not having a sense of their cultural identity losing that cultural identity not having a connection to their cultural identity and the solution is to reconnect people back to their culture which ties to the land and you know that's that's the thing is is to be connected and and to feel a a sense of belonging Uh, another example i'd like to share with you is that uncle max went into one of the the prisons in new south wales and he was with the the Kuri lads there and he told me that he he was he was with the fellows and and the warden said yeah you know go for a walk and and hang out with all the the fellows the curry lads and he said there's maybe 30 or so so he was walking along in the yard and uh the the uh the fellas are walking along next to him and, and, and he said, so put your hand up if you're a proud black fella. So they all put their, their fists up. And, and he said, put your hand up if you're, if you're connected to your culture. And they're all, yeah, uncle, yeah. And then he said, well, <clears throat> how come you're walking along that pathway there with your shoes on when you can walk on the grass with your shoes off and feel this land? So we're all black and white a pair of shoes away from being connected to the land you know we can see the land but when you feel the land and you can start by just taking off those rubber soles that were made in China uh, we do all have the opportunity as I said black and white to be connected to country to feel the land and that's a gift from First Nation people to all of us is to feel the land any chance we get to be healed by the land and to do our healing in return in whichever way that is
0: and do you see progress in that regard do you see greater understanding of that point of view by mainstream society by the ones that actually physically took that land from people that had inhabited for so many centuries
1: or do you notice backwards steps what do you, what do you notice My my two sons love to to be barefoot, and I encourage when their friends come over to kick their shoes off, and uh, they do. So, you know, the decisions we're making now, today, are for uh, for future generations. So the progress, how do you measure progress? You know, is it in a political term, four years, or is it over a 400-year period, the generations to come? You know, let's get let's get our day right, so tomorrow's great, and so forth, and bring all those put all that time together and 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 have a look at the world. But you know, we all have a responsibility here, culturally, and uh, with the land.
0: And we do have some indigenous parliamentarians now. We have indigenous senators. I mean, there is a slow. Um, you know, gradual entry by indigenous society into the, the highest echelons of political power in the country. So, you know, notwithstanding other issues regarding questions of governance and things, you know, that is a good thing that that perspective is now entering those levels of power. It's something relatively new. And, you know, we'll see how that eventually plays itself out, you know, and we'll hope that that contributes to finding better ways um because i think still you know as i mean aboriginals now make up about what one or two percent of australian society I mean, it's a very small number um and there's been a lot of backward steps in recent years they even the government of australia even suspended the application of the convention on the elimination of racial discrimination in the Northern Territory as part of its so-called intervention there. Um, so that's just one of, you know, hundreds of examples we could give where Indigenous rights were uh, put on the back burner, so to speak.
1: Yeah. Uh, Scotty, there's there's leaders and there's leaders. There's political leaders and there are genuine leaders. And unfortunately, the filter, you know, through, through Parliament uh, is is pretty, pretty daunting. And, you know, I, I see real results on the land through the leaders on the land, the elders who are on the land. Uh, and, you know, it's like when, you know, Peter Garrett used to sing these incredible songs. He probably still does about, you know, the, the political aspects of, of, uh, of this country um, through his songs. And they were very powerful. They moved a lot of people. And then Peter went into politics and I don't know if he's managed to achieve as much as he did as an artist, as a as a free man, uh, following his 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 passion. And so that's why I say, you know, good luck to those uh, First Nation politicians. Hang in there and and make as much change as you can. Obviously, that's what they're there for. But the change has to come from the people. The, you know, we influence what goes on. So. If we're prepared to to change our lifestyles uh and perhaps let go of some of that that Westminster system uh e- enough to strengthen ourselves in in other ways and unite on that that front so caring for country and saying no to certain things and showing up when there's there's an opportunity to show up and and show our disapproval or approval, then let's do that so that first nation politician. Has, has some strength behind him or her.
0: Right, and what do you think... Um, what do you think about um, the entire question of homelands in particular as being part of the solution or part of the problem? There are those that believe that were we to pursue this idea of homelands, that that would be a backward step um an over romanticization of of indigenous culture and life i've heard that i've heard that said Mm. um and there are others who take the view that actually if you want to maintain indigenous culture strengthen it reduce the problems associated with it then an emphasis on regaining and restoring and strengthening the homeland is the way to go so what what do do you have any thoughts on that
1: yeah bring on the homeland you know, let's let's reclaim that word. You know, Al Al-Qa- Qaeda doesn't own that word, homeland. It's, you know, it has a meaning. Or, yet. or
0: white South African.
1: Oh, okay, yeah. Pro-apartheid yeah. people. Well, there you go. Yeah, all that stuff. So, you know, in this country, homeland—the the word is important. What does it mean know? here in Australia? It's a sense of it's a place of belonging. It's a it's a place where stories uh that go back. Tens of thousands of years. If we if we have to put it into years, let's let's not break it down too much and say you know sixty thousand years or forty thousand years. These are tens of thousands of years, and beyond. You know, there's there's a uh, this this country has homelands that people belong to, and that sense of belonging is is vitally important for our for their and our spiritual and uh, and physical health. Uh, you know, the word homeland—it it needs to become part of our daily vocabulary and and not shy away from it. It, it you know, it's in a significant word with significant meaning. And you know, the the person that's missing out of this room right now is a First Nation person, blooded to a part of this country. So where I'm coming from with what I have to say is through. 30, 30 years of, uh, I almost said 30,000 years then, but 30 years of, um, <laughs> of, uh, of, of traveling this country and sitting down with, with the leaders and the community members and listening. And I only bring back what I've been, what I've been taught mm-hmm. to share. So my opinions are uh, passionate ones, but the stories I tell are true ones. And if people, if listeners
0: want to learn more about Indigenous cultures in Australia, Indigenous history, contemporary Indigenous life in Australia, where would you point them? In the direction of what websites or books or other sources of information would you point them in the direction of? Presuming a lot of them will not ever come to Australia.
1: Oh, you mean people from another country coming here?
0: people that will never be able to make it to Australia to see it firsthand so what would you what would you say they should look into to understand it more
1: oh scotty i mean that's
0: any books any websites any yeah look, anything just, that looks just interesting
1: in, yeah just you know whatever whatever shines to them on their their www.search you know something will come up that'll resonate with them but i guess you know sorry let's 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 really look at that question i now i'm thinking about it Read or study texts directly from uh, the people of the land themselves. When you have authors who write about culture, that's about somebody else's story. It's, it's another way of, um, of pinching a good thing and putting it out there for yourself, your own gains. Uh, but when you actually listen to a recorded text... Um, uh, whether it's you know, in print or through voice, then and it's directly from an elder or a community member, that's worth listening to. It's worth absorbing and it's worth noting and acting upon. So that's a really good way to do it. And it's something that I've done um, through my time as an author, uh, recording Indigenous culture in this country, is word-for-word transcription. Send out the information back to the community, and make sure that the elders and uh, the people in that community are happy with it before it is published. That's really important. You know, it's a blessing. It goes a long way. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um,
0: well, thank you very much, Peter. Do you have anything else you want to add before we sign off today? Anything else exciting on in the Indigenous world of Australia?
1: Oh, i got many stories to share. I was sitting in Arnhem Land... 25 years plus ago and I was uh, got up one morning and with my old grandfather we sat down the beach just after sunrise and he started collecting sticks and bits of dry seaweed and rolled himself a cigarette and lit the fire the sticks in front of us and as the smoke went up a, a big sea eagle came and landed right in front of us and stood there and looked at the old man and the old man pointed out to sea and said, go Hunter so the seagull's name's Hunter I'd I'd never met Hunter before and Hunter flew, flew off and disappeared around the point and came back a short time later with a large fish in its talons and dropped it in front of the old man and I and we ate that fish for breakfast and sharing it with Hunter so you know, that's just one of the many great things that happens out on the land. Uh many stories to tell. So yeah, enjoy enjoy this country. Enjoy where you are. Know where you are. Know whose country you're on. Um, you know, learn as much about it as you can. And talk about culture in, in the, the present. You know, Point of Pin, it didn't used to be a women's birthing place. It still is. So let's look forward to that.
0: Right. And, you know, it
1: also reminds me of, of where
0: we are and, and the stories that are told by um, the relatively small number of Aboriginal people who still live here, where the stories go back in time so far that they describe Port Phillip Bay before it was Port Phillip Bay and the existence of a, of a 300-foot waterfall that's now buried by millions of gigaliters of water. Um, but the stories actually stretch back that far in time, which is an amazing thing, which you simply... There's no parallel in other types of, you know, cultural frameworks in the world, whereby there's a direct line from the people, the very people that saw that 300-foot waterfall... Um, and the people who are alive today to tell the story, which stretches back, you know, countless human generations. So um, with that, we will say farewell today to um, to all of you. Um, we have some really great episodes also coming up soon. Um, we'll have Liam Suckling from One Sky Earth, who is in the middle of a uh, epic Motorcycle journey all across planet Earth, 120,000 kilometers long, where he's stopping in every single continent and climbing the five highest peaks in that on that continent. And he's going. The trip will culminate in two or three years, um, with an overland walk from Kolkata in India all the way to the top of Mount Everest, um. And so he's making the point, which very much we do at Jointly Venturing and Oneness World, that we all live under the same sky, we all walk upon the same planet, and we all woke up in the same place today. So let's all remember that very basic point that all too many of us forget, and let us all walk gently on planet Earth because it's the only one we've got. So thanks again, everyone. We'll see you next time. All the best. Bye now.